You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey everybody, this is Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and this is another edition of the Hashtag Fem Doctor Series. And my guest today is Shreya Patel, MD. She's an allergist and immunologist in Orlando, Florida. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Patel. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited to do this. I've done quite a few of these hashtag fem doctor series, and I just love it because every single fem doctor really has her own unique story. And I feel like I'm just making the rounds with all of the different practice areas. And it's been really interesting. So I'm excited to talk to you about your practice area and your history. But I have to start out because I'm a Jersey girl. You went to Rutgers med school. I, oh, I didn't go to Rutgers Med School. I did um, my fellowship training at Rutgers, but I am from the Northeast. So Pennsylvania, New Jersey, everything. Yes. Okay. I'm looking at your bio and it says you're, you were a fellow at Rutgers, New Jersey School of Medicine. Exactly. Yep. So okay. I did my allergy and immunology fellowship there for two years. Okay. And I get a little confused with the fellowship and the residency and all that stuff because that, you know, being a lawyer, not a doctor, I sometimes get a little fuzzy on what the trajectory is. So maybe you could just tell us, you know, where did you go to college? What's your educational background? Sure. So for anybody who eventually becomes a doctor, you start off with four years of undergraduate education. So I went to Penn State University because I'm from Pennsylvania, (laughs) actually kind of born and bred there. So I stayed near home. And then once you finish undergrad, you go to medical school. I went to med school at St. George's University, which is actually in Grenada in the West Indies. And then after med, once you finish medical school, you earn your medical degree or your MD, then you usually choose what do you want to do? Do you want to do pediatrics? Do you want to do internal medicine, family medicine, emergency medicine? And that is the residency that you choose. So I actually did a pediatric residency because I wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, But then of course, you know, as you do your residency, a lot of times you, you evolve as a person, you think, okay, do I want to be a general pediatrician or do, or even, you know, somebody who does internal medicine, do I want to be an internist or do I want to specialize? And then when you specialize, that's when you go into a fellowship. So because I decided I wanted to specialize in allergy and immunology, I actually did a fellowship. And the unique thing about doing a fellowship in allergy and immunology is even though I was pediatric trained, I actually see adults and children right now because my fellowship trained me for both. So there are internal medicine trained doctors who will also do a fellowship in allergy and immunology and see children as well. So that's one unique thing about my field. Why does there need to be a distinction between adults and and kids with allergies? (laughs) So with allergies, so just in general, pediatricians do not like it when you say children are just little adults (laughs) because they're very different. So um, within allergy and immunology, even so allergies tend to run in the family. And I think that's why it's really great that I get to treat the whole family from we say we treat from zero to 99, you know, like all ages. But treatment of allergies in children can be very different. Dosing of medications are very different. Some medications are not even approved in children. So you can only use it in adults. And honestly, just 
having that skill of taking care of pediatric patients, it's a unique skill set to be able to connect with your patient and also be able to connect with their parents as well. So it's it's different. I think you need that sort of training. So and the allergist immunologists who are trained in internal medicine, they usually during their fellowship will get training in pediatric allergy and immunology. So they'll learn as well, you know, that that unique aspect of pediatrics. I think I might rather deal with the kids. <laughs> it might be easier. <laughs> so I'll be honest, I I prefer that as well. They don't have as many much of a medical history as many medications and stuff like that. And I mean, I just children have my heart, which is why I started in pediatrics in the first place. I just kind of love the field of allergy and immunology. So that's why I went that route. But I always wanted to still continue to treat children because that that's really where my heart lies. I don't know why, but I can't help but think right now about that movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where I forget his name, but the main character goes to his pediatrician. I think because he thinks he has an STI and he's sitting in the doctor's office in a fire engine bed. And the doctor goes, I think it's time you went to see another doctor. (laughs) So my question is, at what point do you not go to the pediatrician anymore? When are you not appropriate for that? So usually between 18 and 21 is when people will decide, okay, we need to start transitioning you out to an internal medicine doctor, a lot of people will see a family medicine doctor, because family medicine doctors will see children and adults, some of them, some of them choose to only see adults. I don't think many family medicine doctors will choose just to see kids, because that's usually more pediatrics. But family medicine doctors will see all ages. So a lot of people will kind of transition to that. But yeah, usually between 18 to 21, it's a discussion, you know, you have to kind of personally have with your doctor on an individual basis. There are some conditions such as pediatric heart diseases that they will see a pediatric cardiologist probably for their whole life and not really go to a adult cardiologist because it is a pediatric heart condition that they were born with. So it's really, it really depends. But in general, most people between the age of 18 to 21 will start to transition to an adult doctor for the exact reason example you just gave. (laughs) Yeah, not too many of them uh, are worried about STIs. That even sounds old to me. I thought you were going to say more like when they get to puberty. Oh, no, no, no. Pediatricians are well equipped at dealing with puberty. And actually, there's even another higher specialized field under pediatrics, which is adolescent medicine. So pediatricians, once they finish their residency, can then choose to do a fellowship in adolescent medicine, which will then make them specialize in seeing teenagers. So there's like a even in between kind of pediatrics and adult medicine. But then a lot of pediatricians will also just see you know, teenagers. So it just depends. Some of the more complicated teenagers may be at higher risk for certain things, eating disorders, things like that. They will choose to see a specialized, you know, adolescent medicine doctor. Well, the older I get, and the more I think about this stuff and, and talk to you femme doctors is I was realizing that we don't, we're really evolving and changing throughout the course of our lives, right? Like we're a kid, we're an infant, I, you know, I know there's different stages. And then we hit puberty. And then at some point, you're done with puberty, and you're an adult, but then, you know, your body is different in your 20s, 30s, 40s. And as you age, you know, there's just different health concerns that people have as they age. And I'm 45. So I hate to use the M word, which is the menopause word, but that's not that far off into the future. And from what I hear, that's a whole other set of things um, that you experience with your body. So it's sort of interesting how your body goes through all these phases. 
I, yeah, I totally agree. And, and what's funny is it's not even just your body, but even just kind of like your mental health and your emotional stability and all of that. I mean, between maturity, of course, but between just even my twenties and my thirties, I feel like I'm a totally different person. I feel like I have evolved so much in my maturity level and how I view the world. And, you know, like this whole, I love this whole collaboration over competition aspect now that I've gotten more into where it's like, I, I went through medical school and college and, and, and everything was like, you have to be the best. You have to be the best. This is how you're going to do it. And now it's like, well, you have to be good, but you don't have to beat other people out. You know, like we can all collaborate and we can all succeed together. And I feel like that has been a big, the way I've evolved, at least since, you know, in the last 10 years, that has been a big difference in my life, at least I think. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that definitely is the byproduct of maturity. And I really love to see women doing that for each other, supporting each other and not coming from a place of competition. Because if anybody knows what our experience is in the world as a woman, it's us, right? Absolutely. I definitely agree. And 100% with women, that whole collaboration over competition, that's really key. And I want to try to teach that to my daughter young, you know, that you, you do need to work together and we need to rise together because that's really the only way we're going <laughs> to, we're going to be able to succeed. There is enough success to go around. Exactly. Agreed. You know, <laughs> if, if you're successful, it's not to my detriment, right? It, it exactly. Yep. Um, but so I love that. I love that quality. Um, I want to ask you, did you know from the time you were a kid that you wanted to be a doctor? Actually, I think my story is a little different from a lot of people. I did not want to be a doctor because I come from a family of doctors. <laughs> like everybody's a doctor in my family. Well, my dad is a doctor. And then a lot of my uncles and aunts, everybody's, you know, a doctor. A lot of my cousins went into medicine. And so I was always like, no, I'm going to be different. I am not going to be that Dr. Patel. I'm not going to be that other Indian doctor. And so I definitely tried... I, I wanted to be like a reporter at some point. I wanted to be a lawyer at some point. There's a lot of things I wanted to do. And I definitely explored a lot of those routes. And then at some point I was like, I'm not that creative. <laughs> I'm not very good at arguing or like, I don't know, putting myself out there, you know? So I'm like, I think I'm really good at science and I'm, I'm, I'm good at book learning, you know? So I was like, I kind of, dabbled with biology and a couple of different things in college. And then eventually, by the time I was my junior year was really when I decided, let me just take the MCAT, like, let me see. And, um, and that's actually probably what took me to St. George's medical school, because I was never one of those people who was like, I'm, I'm going to do med school. I'm, I didn't kind of go the linear route, I went very, like a zigzag route to where I wanted to go. Um, but I guess what's meant to be is meant to be. And here I am today. And I couldn't be happier. And I don't think I would have chosen anything different. So maybe you just needed to explore some of those other ideas so that you didn't become a doctor and then say, Oh, maybe I should have been a journalist or whatever. Exactly. And I and I think the main thing for me is I didn't want to become a doctor, because I felt like I had to, I wanted to make that decision for myself. And I was lucky enough to have parents who were like, yeah, you know, do do what you got to do. Like, you don't have to be a doctor. That's fine. You just they wanted me to get an education, you know, and they're like in something. So I was lucky enough to have that. And I think that almost helped me make the decision because I didn't have parents who pressured me, or I didn't feel like I was pressured to do something I didn't want to do. 
Um, and, and so I think that was, that was very helpful for me. That's awesome. Cause I know sometimes people do feel a lot of pressure from family to sort of continue the, the, the trade onto the next generation. Right. You were featured in Orlando style magazine. Yes, I was. (laughs) And there were a few things in there that I found interesting that I wanted to ask you to explain a little further. Sure. It says that about 20% of the population believe they have a food allergy while only 5% actually do. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So basically there's a big confusion between food allergy versus food intolerance or kind of just a sensitivity to foods. Um, And so what I mean by more of the population believes they actually have a food allergy versus the ones that actually do is that more people have an intolerance. So the big difference between the two is that food allergy really involves your immune system. So it's somebody take, for example, somebody who's allergic to peanut, they eat the peanut and their immune system develops antibodies against that peanut, which then if their body is ever exposed to it, those antibodies will attack and thus create, you know, a, a, a bunch of different reactions within the body that result in the symptoms like hives, trouble breathing. It's very life-threatening. And most of the time they need some sort of emergent treatment. However, an intolerance actually involves the GI system. So I'm sure you've more commonly heard of the people saying, oh, I can't have dairy because it makes me gassy, or I can't eat X, Y, Z because I'll have diarrhea or I'll have stomach cramping. So that is actually much more common than what I had discussed with the food allergy, where it's actually your immune system attacking a food and causing these life-threatening reactions. So what happens is I have every week, I mean, I I would almost say almost every single day, I have at least one patient who comes in and says, I want to be tested for food allergies because I eat this and my stomach hurts, or I eat this and I have a lot of gas, or I'm very bloated all the time. And so I think it's it's some sort of food allergy, but I don't know which one it is, right? And so that's where we come in as allergists, and we can actually get the whole history, get the whole story. And a lot of times just from the story alone, I can tell them like, you don't have a food allergy. It sounds like you have lactose intolerance or gluten insensitivity or something like that. Or if it's unclear, or sometimes patients just need the peace of mind, really, you know, we will do some testing to certain foods they may be concerned of. And then when the testing is negative, we can confirm that, hey, look, it's not your immune system actually attacking the food, but it's more of an intolerance. So that's where those statistics come from that people think they have a food allergy, but it's not really an allergy. I love that you just went into that because I think I was a little unclear on what the difference was. Most people are actually. So that's where we come in. That's why I have a job. (laughs) I like that. So is it really that the the, I understand that the, the bodily process that's happening is different, but your symptoms are different. Yeah, for the most part, your symptoms are different. The only overlap I would say is with food allergies, you can still have some GI symptoms. So if you are having an allergic reaction to a food, you can have abdominal cramping, you can have vomiting, sometimes you can have some delayed diarrhea, but that will most likely not be your predominant symptom. You 90% of people who have a food allergy will also have some sort of skin manifest manifestation, such as hives or itching, they'll usually have some swelling, they could have trouble breathing. Now I have had patients who will eat something and they just vomit. And so that's where I come in again, right to try to clarify between the difference. Is it a food allergy? Or did you just have an intolerance to it? Now another big difference is food allergy to me is 
it's white or black. There's no real gray area. Okay. So if you have a food allergy, every time you eat that food or exposed to that food, you will have a reaction, some sort of reaction. Okay. Whereas if you have an intolerance, you can tolerate sometimes small amounts of the food, you know, like for people with lactose intolerance, you're here all the time, right? I'm lactose intolerance, but I'll have like a couple bites of of that ice cream, you know, like, but if you have a dairy allergy, you cannot have a couple of bites of that ice cream. So that is also another big differentiating factor. That's really interesting too, because I do know somebody who says that she's allergic to shellfish, but every once in a while, she'll treat herself to a little bit of lobster or something. And, um, I always wondered about that, you know, but if you're allergic to it, how can you just have a little, so if, I obviously you haven't examined this person, but does that sound like it's probably more like a sensitivity? Okay. So shellfish is tricky because so shellfish is or seafood in general is the most common food allergy amongst adults because milk and egg, which are the most common amongst children, 85% of children will grow out of that into adulthood, right? So now they're no longer as adult. Now they're no longer allergic to the dairy and the eggs. And that's where seafood comes up and peanut and tree nuts are still amongst those top three within adults as well. Now, the reason I say seafood is tricky is because some people love seafood so much and they've been eating it throughout their life and then they develop an allergy as an adult and they will eat small amounts of it and they will have somewhat of a reaction, but they will treat it. So I don't know if she felt, like you said, I haven't examined her. I don't know her history. So I don't know if your friend falls into that category where she is getting a little itchy or she is getting some hives and she's just treating it or it's misdiagnosed where it's either an intolerance or sensitivity. Or the other thing is there is also something called pollen food cross reactivity, where if you're allergic to dust mite and cockroach, which share similar characteristics to shellfish, you will get some itching, just itching in the mouth. And so people will get that itching and they think I'm allergic, but they'll still eat it because it's not, you know, it's not like a true food allergy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all very, very complicated, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to really oversimplify it. And I'm so sorry that I just heard what you said about the cockroach because I don't know if I'm going to be able to look at shellfish the same way. <laughs> I'm really yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'll try to unhear that. I'll try to forget about that part. I have to ask you though, and this is something I hear a lot of people say just casually. I told you I'm 45. When I was a kid, I don't remember all these kids in school having these peanut allergies. You know, I remember my mom would make cupcakes on my birthday and I would bring them in. And I hear now kids aren't allowed to do that because there's so many kids with different allergies. Is that just my imagination or are we seeing more prevalence with food allergies in kids? That's not your imagination. The incidence of food allergies are on the rise. We definitely have more food allergies now. There are lots of different hypotheses. In general, why do allergies happen? Why do some people have food allergies is a question that we don't know the full answer to at the moment, right? However, we do have hypotheses, like why? why? So the hypotheses, I don't know if you've heard of the hygiene hypothesis. Have you heard about that? No. Okay. So the hygiene hypothesis is one of the ones that's probably um, more well-known than the other ones. And it basically implies that we were too clean. So we didn't expose our children to enough dirt and enough um, 
bacteria in the environment to build that microbiome in their gut. So that's the good bacteria in your gut. And so what happens is when you have a dysbiosis or an imbalance in that good bacteria in your gut, because you didn't have exposure early on to playing outdoors, you know, pets, dust, foods, allergenic foods early on in the diet, then your body doesn't tolerate it once it sees it. Your body doesn't develop a good gut microbiome and also your immune system was not exposed to it early enough. And so when you are eventually exposed to, to it a little bit later, rather, you know, maybe after the age of one, two, three, your body now views that thing as foreign and thus attacks at your immune system. And that's how you develop a food allergy. So many years ago, the recommendations really were to delay allergenic foods till after kids were three. And so lots of parents were not giving peanuts early on. And in the last five to 10 years, they've really come out with this new data that says, no, we should be introducing allergenic foods as early as four to six months. So this is as soon as you start feeding your child solids, you should also be adding allergenic foods. And that's where all these products, little mixins and spoonful, spoonful one and all these little products where they have almost prepackaged powder, like peanut powder, tree nut powder that you mix into baby food so that the child is exposed early on. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that. I've, I've been, at least in my neighborhood, I've been hearing all the parents no, don't give little Johnny peanuts <laughs> you know, or something like, or dairy or whatever it is. So that's really interesting. So maybe as people start to do that, we'll start to see less of this. And it'll be like, when I was a kid, you could bring cupcakes to school. Yeah, so we're hoping. However, again, it's more complicated. That's one hypothesis. There is, of course, genetics involved. There's also environmental factors. That's this whole concept of epigenetics, which is the environmental impact on our genes. So we can be born to parents who don't have allergies, any allergies at all. And now we have allergies because the environment almost had an impact on our genetic makeup. And now we've developed allergies. So there's that piece of it as well. And then even C-sections are more common now than they were in the past. And actually having a vaginal delivery is thought to expose the child to the natural bacteria in the vaginal canal, which helps again with that gut microbiome. Um, more antibiotic use also messes up the gut microbiome. There's a lot of factors at play. So we're hoping that early introduction will help lower the risk of food allergies for sure. However, we, we also know there are many other factors at play. And for the kids that do develop the peanut allergy, I think you said that they will typically grow out of that. No, peanut and tree nut, only about 20% of children will grow out of that allergy. So most, that's why that is um, one of the top three. So it's in adults, the top three common food allergens are seafood, peanut and tree nuts. Because even though they've developed the peanut tree nut allergy as children, there's only only about 20% of kids will grow out of it. Um, milk and egg are the top in the top three food allergens amongst children. However, 85% of those children will grow out of those allergens by the time they're teenagers. So okay. when they're adults, they no longer have, that's why you don't meet a lot of adults who have a milk or egg food allergy you'll meet adults with lactose intolerance, which again, remember we talked about is different, um, but you won't meet a lot of adults with milk and egg allergy. You will meet adults with peanut, tree nut and seafood allergy. Yeah, I've heard those, but how do they grow out of it? I mean, I'm not inviting you to go into the, you know, a lot of um, medical lingo that I'm not gonna understand anyway, but 
Could you kind of summarize that? The summary to that is we don't know. <laughs> okay, that's so, easy. <laughs> yeah, we think we think it's like a natural loss of the the allergenic antibody over time that that for some reason they grow out of it, but it's it's actually very complicated and we're not 100% sure, but we do because of milk milk and egg we do try to expose children at a young age to baked milk and baked egg. So what happens is when you bake a muffin in the oven with that contains egg and milk, it breaks down certain allergenic proteins within the milk and the egg. And now your child may be able to tolerate it. So this is all has to be discussed with your allergist first, whether or not your child can tolerate it or not, because there are some children who have severe allergic reactions to even the baked egg and milk. However, once we believe that the child is able to tolerate that, we try to get that into their diet as soon as possible because now their body is getting trained. Oh, I do see a little bit of egg here. I see a little bit of milk here. I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this. And then with time, we hope that they continue to tolerate it more. So we follow our food allergy patients annually, if not sooner, if they have other issues, but if it's just food allergies, then, you know, we follow them annually. We retest them annually and we watch, we watch to see, are they starting to grow out of that allergy or not. But again, it's complicated. We're not we're not sure why, but we know that it happens. Yeah. And, and I just want to add sort of a little disclaimer that this is a conversation. It's not intended to be medical advice. And everybody who's listening, please don't start now giving your children these muffins to exactly. break them off this allergy. Talk to your doctor about it first. But absolutely. I think- but I, but I agree with you that it's not medical advice, but it's something ask your doctor about say, Hey, can my child have baked egg and milk to help them grow out of grow out of the allergy? It's something that should be addressed. And if they're not seeing a specialist and they're only seeing their pediatrician for their allergy, it's a good time to say, Hey, if you're not comfortable figuring out whether or not my child can have a baked egg or milk. Can I see an allergist who can help me decide that or not? So that's a good yeah. thing. Would encourage people if you have little ones, you know, if you're, if you're pregnant, <laughs> even talk to someone about introducing nuts because that's a hard allergy to have grow as an adult. And not to mention you're missing out on peanut butter cups. Yeah. <laughs> I oh. know. I try not to mention that to my patients though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I pretend like to, I don't like peanut butter cups. <laughs> we don't want to tell you how good that is, but I usually tell my patients, I'm like, you're not missing anything. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you have to deliver that delicately. Yes. <laughs> so I want to talk about another thing you had in this bio that, that I found interesting is that 95% of patients with a recorded penicillin allergy are not actually allergic to penicillin. That was surprising to me. Yeah, so that's another really great topic. So penicillin allergy. There are a couple of reasons why adults who report that they have a penicillin allergy don't actually have a penicillin allergy. So first of all, it was misdiagnosed. So as a child, they had a viral infection, or any infection that was associated with a rash, they're treated with penicillin, and then they develop a rash. um, And they're diagnosed with a penicillin allergy. However, now it could have been the penicillin, but also the most common cause of hives in children is virus. So they may have hives due to the virus. And we know that more now. Um, And so now I think people are a little bit more aware of that diagnosis. And so they were misdiagnosed, right? So now they're labeled penicillin allergy their whole life. So that's one. Number two, if you really do have a penicillin allergy, like it really was diagnosed appropriately, 
um, majority of adults will grow out of that allergy too. <laughs> and don't ask me why, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but majority of adults will actually grow out of that allergy as well. And so that's why another great reason to go see an allergist because it's a pretty simple skin test that can be done in the office. That is the only standardized skin test to a medication allergy out there, which means that we have good negative predictive value. So if you have a negative skin test to penicillin, we have a nine, about a 99% assurity that you do not have a penicillin allergy. And then what we have you do is we have you come in for one more appointment with amoxicillin in your hand, you take it in front of us, we watch you for about an hour, and then you say, all right, you're not allergic to penicillin. It's pretty simple. Within two visits, you can usually, two to three visits, you can usually get that done. And you have an EpiPen handy. <laughs> we always have, we have adrenaline, we have multi-dose vials, we have lots of epinephrine and allergist office. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> well, that's interesting because when I was a kid, I was told I had, was allergic to sulfa drugs. And I, it's so annoying to have to write that down on all of my medical records anywhere. I'd really like to not have to write that down. So I think maybe I'm going to have someone look into that. So sulfa, you should have somebody look into that. Sulfa is a little bit more complicated because remember I mentioned penicillin is the only medication that there's a standardized test for. So sulfa, it depends. Definitely a doctor would have to get, you know, your whole history, see what exactly is the reason why you were labeled as allergic to sulfa. There are tests that can be done to sulfa. They're just not quite as good. So ultimately you will have to eat the sulfa to really determine whether or not you're allergic or not. So usually we start with a skin test. If the skin test is negative, we say every, every um, drug allergy is a little bit different. So there's either going to be a 50%, 60%, 70% kind of predictive value of the test that it's actually negative. But if you really want to know, you have to, you have to take it. Sort of so, curious. You know, maybe I could just have my friend come in with a video camera and we can see how that works out. That would be sort of fun. <laughs> But I don't know, am I, are, am I missing out on a lot of drugs because I can't have sulfa drugs? I don't know. Not really. Sulfa, sulfa, not really. There's Bactrim is usually the most common one used within sulfa. And usually um, that's the one that you're labeled allergic to. When you're allergic to sulfa methoxazole, which is in Bactrim, they usually say you can take other sulfa containing non-antibiotics. So most people would give it to you. Penicillin, the reason penicillin allergy should always be clarified is because Penicillin is oftentimes the first line antibiotic choice for most infections. And so it actually um, prevents patients from getting the best antibiotic for the infection. It also rises up healthcare costs by using alternative, more expensive medications. And it also, sometimes those other alternative medications are not as safe, have more, more of a side effect profile than penicillin. So I think penicillin really is the one that if you're an adult walking around with a penicillin allergy and you're not really even sure you have the allergy, that's something you should definitely get clarified until, you know, cause we're all going to get older at some point and we're going to be in the hospital and we're going to have these bad infections and you want that penicillin. <laughs> you want the good stuff. You want the good stuff. Yeah. You want the Kleenex, not the target brand tissue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My business partner says he's allergic to penicillin. So I'm going to talk to him about this and encourage you should. <laughs> so let's talk about asthma. Because that's another thing that I see really prevalent with kids that I just don't remember when I was little. Why are there so many kids with asthma? Um, so I don't know how to answer the question, why are there so many kids with asthma? A lot of people do have asthma in general. Asthma, again, similar to allergies is multifactorial. Genetics plays a big part. 
Um, and then allergies plays a big part too. Allergic asthma is actually very, very common. And so the more and more kids have allergies, the more and more they're going to have asthma as well. So, um, but a lot of times what people don't realize is asthma is a chronic disorder. And so you can have asthma as a child and then quote unquote, grow out of asthma as a teen. And then oftentimes it will come back or because you always had it, but it was just controlled for many years. And then oftentimes as you get older or your allergies get worse, or you move to a new place where the pollen's different, whatever, or you start exercising more, some of your asthma symptoms might start to come back. So it's actually, we see it a lot more now that allergies are more prevalent and people are more aware of that. I think also we're in this culture now where everybody wants to exercise and work out and be healthy, which is great, but then their asthma is getting in the way. So I see a lot of patients come to me for the first time because of that. So kids can grow out of asthma. So usually they say, if you're diagnosed with asthma, it's a chronic condition. So you will most likely have it for the rest of your life. So that's what I was saying. It's like, they think they grow out of it because it's, it's stable. However, that being said, like everything we're talking about today, it's more complicated than that in that a child can have wheezing as a baby with viruses. That does not mean they have asthma. So they grow out of the wheezing. And so then they don't have asthma later, right? So it just okay. depends on whether it was diagnosed as asthma or not and how it was diagnosed. Well, as a divorce lawyer, I've seen enough disputes between parents about whether their child really has asthma, that it's sort of a thing. And it's come up a lot of times where you've got one parent saying, little Johnny has asthma, he needs his inhaler. And then the other one, I hate to say it, but it's often the dad's. Oh, he does not. He's fine. You know, I've seen him go outside and run around. He's good. He doesn't really have asthma. Do you see that sometimes in your practice? I do. And I hear you on the dad part. And I think it's the dads are not at all. They, they don't have any malintent. And I think it's more, even with food allergies, I'll oftentimes when it's first diagnosing it, it's usually the father who has a very hard time accepting that. And the dad's like, well, can I just go home and try to give him a little, you know, and so same with asthma, like, no, he doesn't have asthma. It's oftentimes a father. And I think it's more just because in their mind, it's like, no, my, my kid doesn't have this problem. No, like you can't diagnose them with this, you know? And in that case, it's probably that the child has mild asthma. You can have, there are different levels of asthma. There's mild intermittent asthma, which is basically maybe they get every time they get sick. That could be the example that the mom was giving, you know, like he needs his inhaler because if he gets sick, he, he might start wheezing and might, he might start get, getting that really bad cough. The colds always go to their chest is what they say, you know? So that's kind of the mild intermittent asthma where there's only specific triggers. Otherwise he's totally fine. So that's probably a good example of what that child was going through. Then there's mild persistent where it's still mild, but they do have symptoms maybe once a week, twice a week, even at rest. And then they get moderate where they have symptoms several times a week. And then when you get into severe, it's like, daily, several times a day, also at night, things like that. So there's different, there's a spectrum. And so my, my guess is a child like that is on the mild intermittent spectrum. And so there's an argument whether does he really have asthma or not, you know, because it's never really there, but sometimes it is there. <laughs> yeah, well, we could have an hour long conversation about where some of that comes from <laughs> between the parties. I'm um, sure. But I've heard so I've heard this expression before, somebody would say that their kid has exercise induced asthma. Is that a real thing? Absolutely. And I have exercise induced asthma. I have allergic asthma as well, but I also suffer from exercise induced asthma. So absolutely. So there are some children um, and adults 
who are fine at rest. Like I, you know, don't have any symptoms at all. Like I don't need an inhaler. I'm fine. However, when they start working out and they start to do intense cardio, they find that their chest gets a little bit tighter than usual. So when you do cardio, right, you're meant to get a little bit breathless, right? However, the main difference is when you are meant to recover, like, okay, you're doing a sprint now recover, sprint, recover, whatever it might be, you should be able to recover, you shouldn't have a persistent chest tightness throughout the entire workout, you should also be able to catch your breath during that recovery, right. Um, And a lot of people with exercise induced asthma have to stop exercising, although that is the only way they can catch their breath. Otherwise they can't catch it. Um, Wheezing also is not a common thing that you should have when you're exercising. So that's a sign of exercise induced asthma as well. Um, So yeah, it's more common than you know. And and there are treatments for that too, where you don't do an everyday inhaler, but you have an inhaler that you can do just for whenever you exercise. This conversation might be bad because now I'm thinking I have all of these things. (laughs) (laughs) I've diagnosed you with so many different things today. Yeah. I have to go to the doctor after this. (laughs) So what does somebody like that do if they really, well, I was going to say if they enjoy exercise, but they probably don't if they're always having that reaction, but exercise is important. So how do you balance that? Absolutely. And that's a really good question. And so I tell all of my patients, no matter what I diagnose them with, I don't care if it's food allergies, asthma, exercise induced asthma. I always say your diagnosis should not interfere with your life. Like I want children with asthma or exercise induced asthma to go outside and play. And if they have allergies, whatever, I want you to go outside. I want you to run up because parents will often ask that, should they get a note for gym? Should they not, you know, participate in sports? I'm like, absolutely not. I don't want this to be a reason for them to be labeled as different or not be able to be who they want to be. So exercise, like you said, is super important. So there are treatments for that. So typically we'll prescribe certain inhalers that you can do 20 to 30 minutes before you exercise. And that should prevent the symptoms. Or if it doesn't, then we talk about putting you on a daily inhaler to maintain your asthma at a better level so that you can perform at the level you want to perform at. So a lot of these kids, um, especially teenagers who are in high school, they'll take their inhaler before gym class, like 20 minutes before gym, or a lot of them play sports. So they'll take it 20 minutes before they go swimming or before they have to play basketball, or they'll take it in between the basketball games. So there are different ways where you can still live your life. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. And then I saw something in this article that there actually are a lot of people that don't realize that their breathlessness is due to asthma, which I didn't realize. I thought it would affect you so greatly that surely you would go to the doctor and you would know you have asthma, but there's a lot of people that don't know. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people are so used to living like that, that they think that's normal. And what will happen is they'll come see me and I'll, I'll do some tests and I'll be like, "Mm, you know, you're, you're complaining of this, or I'll listen to their lungs and I'll hear something like their little, what we call tight, meaning they're not moving enough air through their lungs, or I'll hear a little wheezing. So I'll do some asthma tests and I'll ask some more questions. And if I treat them, they'll come back and they'll say, I didn't know that this is how everybody else is breathing. Wow. You know, and so they don't know that, that, that they shouldn't be that tight and they should be able to exercise a little bit more efficiently. So I'll use myself for an, as an example is when I was in high school, I don't know if you had to do this, but everybody had to run the mile in gym. That was like part of, I guess, passing, right? And I was, I was a dancer, like I was pretty in shape and, and I could never finish the mile without stopping to catch my breath. And of course, in residency, I'm doing a pulmonary rotation and I do a breathing test on myself. And I'm like, my attending at the time, who's like the person you're learning from when you're a resident, 
was like, you have exercise-induced asthma. And I was like, oh my God, you're right, I do. <laughs> and ever since then, I'm like, all I needed was an inhaler and I probably could have run that mile because it wasn't like my body was tired. It wasn't like I didn't have the muscle. It wasn't like I was deconditioned. It was just that I couldn't breathe. Like I was wheezing. I think I need one of those. <laughs> well, we know, we've already come to the conclusion that you need a lot of different medication. <laughs> I, have, I have to go to the immunologist. We have a lot of work we have to do. Okay, so I don't know why my brain is going here, but so what if you just want to get an edge with your running? Could you take an, an inhaler or is it just, or could it actually hurt you? Usually not. And, and you know, all medications have side effects. So to your question, can it hurt you? Yes, because you, sh you don't want to take medications unnecessarily. Um, and it probably won't help you either. So we do part of our test when we do a breathing test to assess for asthma is that we have people blow into a machine, um, which kind of looks at how, you know, how good their breathing is. Then we have them take the medicine, like the inhaler, like an example of the inhaler I gave you, right? That's supposed to open your airways up. Then we have them repeat it. And we see, does it get better or not? People without asthma don't generally get better. Mm, so okay. it's really if you're starting off at a lower level because your lung function has a ceiling, right? And so if you're already a really good athlete and you're already functioning at that ceiling, there's nothing else other than like actual performance enhancing drugs like steroids or something, you know, there's nothing else that can really is going to get you above that lung capacity. Everybody has a max lung capacity. So how do you know if you if you go out to run, if you could have asthma or if you're just out of shape? <laughs> so a good indication is kind of, um, first of all, you know, if you're just starting off, then you're probably out of shape and see if you if you can build that that endurance up slowly. The other part of it is what I had mentioned earlier was that you should be able to recover. You know, most workouts, because for example, I do the Peloton, like I, I spin, right? And so that is very, and I have asthma. And so for me, it's like very tricky because the Peloton is very strenuous cardio. <laughs> so you will get breathless. You, you are going to get breathless no matter what. However, one thing I noted when I do my inhaler before I do a ride versus when I don't is when they, when you do like the push, you know, like you're going to climb, you're going to climb or you're doing a, a push for more speed, then they'll say, okay, now rest. Now take like a 20 second rest. You should be able to catch your breath. But if you can't catch your breath or, you know, your chest still feels, feels really tight or you start wheezing, then you're like, okay, this is something abnormal. Now, again, if you're just starting off on the Peloton, you're going to struggle no matter what. So you have to build, right? But once you're somebody who exercises regularly and you feel like no matter what I do, I'm still always so short of breath. That's something you should definitely get evaluated. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't really think I have asthma, but... <laughs> I don't know. I, I asked one of my femme doctors, you know, when you're in med school, do you start to think that you have all of these diseases and things that you're learning about? And she's like, yeah, you do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you? Absolutely. I mean, I diagnosed myself with so many things. <laughs> that's scary. That's, I guess that's one of the benefits of being a lawyer. You can't diagnose yourself. No, that's, that's true. <laughs> so you suggested also that people who have hay fever symptoms have an evaluation. Can you talk about that? What is hay fever? Is that just the springtime pollen in the air allergies that most of us think of? So hay fever is actually just a common, you know, like a layman's term, as we call for people who want to just say allergies, like I have hay fever, that's a word for allergies. But in terms of medical terminology, there's no such thing as hay fever. Um, <clears throat> 
what we're referring to as seasonal allergies. So yes, when hay is really just grass, right? And so grass is usually in the spring, but the main pollen seasons that are really affecting most people is gonna be spring with the trees and then the fall with the weeds. So like I said, hay fever is just like a word that people use, but it really is just trying to say seasonal allergies. And the reason I say people should be evaluated is because it's good to know what you're allergic to so that you can be prepared for that season, right? So for me, and I keep using myself as an example because I'm an allergist with a lot of allergies. Um, spring and fall are very bad for me. So I'm allergic to lots of trees and lots of weeds, which then infects my asthma, my allergic asthma. So for me, it's really good to know that those are the seasons that affect me because I don't have to use my inhaler all year round. I start it at the start of spring. I use it to the end of spring. Same with like my nose sprays and allergy pills. I use it during spring and then I stop it for the summer and then I use it started again before the fall and I use it during the fall and then I stop it in the winter. So it helps minimize the use of medications unnecessarily because I, as even as a doctor, I, I trust medications and I trust science, but at the same time, I also don't want to give people medications unnecessarily. I don't see the reason for that, right? Because medications, they all have side effects. So I like to weigh the risks and benefits of treatment. And so sometimes I don't think you have to be on medications all year round if you don't need to be. And then the other reason is there are other treatment options, depending on if you're having side effects from the medications. Like I cannot take an antihistamine. It makes me so drowsy. No matter which one I take, I cannot take it. And I have a lot of patients like that too, or nasal sprays make your nose bleed, whatever it is, right? And so there are different options. Like you can do allergy shots. Um, you can talk about different other prescription medication options with your doctor. So that's what, that's what I mean by getting evaluated, getting tested, finding out what you're allergic to, and then talking about your treatment options. Well, a lot of times I hear people say, gosh, my allergies are really bad this year. I mean, can, do they vary or does it just really have to do with the level of the pollen and you know, grass or whatever in the air? So yes, it has to do with the level of the pollen. You can have some bad days, some better days. You can also have bad seasons. Um, so for example, maybe they're comparing spring to fall. Like last year I was, I wasn't as bad because they're talking about the fall, but now I'm in, now you're in the spring this year and you're like, oh my God, my allergies are so bad this year. Or it could be that their allergies are getting worse, which is not uncommon as you get, you know, as you are exposed to more and more of that pollen every year, your, your immune system gets stronger at attacking it. And so you your symptoms get worse. That is not uncommon at all that I have patients come and say, I've had allergies my whole life, but the last couple of years, it is like worse and worse and worse and worse. So yeah, that's not uncommon. I've sort of noticed, and I don't know if this is all in my head or not. I'll let you tell me if it, it could be related. If I go someplace new, like if I went to Florida now, because I'm not there all the time, I feel like all of a sudden there's new things in the air that are aggravating my allergies. Yeah. So pollen is different everywhere. So there'll be, so for me, my allergies in the Northeast were not as bad. And then I moved down here and my spring and fall are horrible. I've never, never needed an inhaler when it, while living in the Northeast. But when I came down here, my allergies got worse. So my allergic asthma got worse. So yeah, pollens are different, you, different everywhere. You could be allergic to the different pollens in different places differently. Also dust is more common in places like Florida. So if you're allergic to dust, it's going to be worse here. And then the other thing is when people go to places like oceans with like, you know, uh, beach fronts with salt water in the air, that's come almost like a natural medication in the air. So they tend to open up, they tend to feel better. So people feel different in different places. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I have to ask you a, sort of as an aside, how did you end up in Florida? Uh, my husband. <laughs> 
So we did all of our training together. We um, even did what we call couples match and residency. So after medical school, when we were applying for residency, he's an interventional radiologist. So he's the guy who reads all those x-rays and CAT scans, but because he's an interventional radiologist, he also performs minimally invasive procedures using image guidance. So he'll like drain abscesses and do biopsies and all different kinds of things. So anyways, when we applied, he applied for radiology residency at the same time applied for pediatrics. And we did a couples match, meaning we tried to match together at the same program. And so we did in New Jersey. And then his residency was five years long. Mine was only three years. But then I did the two year allergy and immunology fellowship, which I was lucky enough to get my first choice at Rutgers in New Jersey so that we could stay in New Jersey together um, because we wanted to start our family. So and then I had my daughter in New Jersey, actually. Then when I was finishing my fellowship training and he was finishing his residency, he had a one year fellowship that he then got a position in at University of Miami. So that brought us to Florida and Miami, where I worked for another practice. And then after he finished his fellowship, he applied for jobs and, and he just we found a really good job here in Orlando. So then we ended up moving here and then I decided I don't want to work for anybody else anymore. So I started my own practice here. That's cool. Yeah, we didn't even get into your own practice. You're also a businesswoman. Yeah, I am kind of. I, it's funny because it's like hard for me to call myself that. But yeah, I definitely am running a business, small business. <laughs> so do you find that there's a distinction between being a doctor, physician? I, it's so funny with doctors and lawyers, the way because we call ourselves attorneys, but other people call us lawyers. <laughs> and that you guys have sort of the same thing. True. Uh, but anyway, did you feel like you kind of got hit in the face with, okay, well, I'm not just practicing medicine now. I'm actually running a business. So it's really a different job. Yeah. And it can be overwhelming sometimes because when I worked for somebody else, I just had to see patients like that's it. And in between patients, I could read a book or, you know, I could read an article. I could do whatever I wanted to do. And now when I own my own practice, I'm, I'm pretty much never off. I mean, I, even though I, ha I take days off, my phone is constantly buzzing because my office manager says, oh, we have XYZ going on at the office today or a patient called or whatever. And then, you know, the finances of the office, the just administrate everything. So I have to run everything. So in between patients, most of the time I'm doing paperwork or, um, you know, again, like checking my finances and going on QuickBooks, you know, so it's, it's a whole different world for sure. But I kind of like it. It's very challenging and it's really fun learning this new trade. So I love it. I can relate to that a lot. Um, do you also have other physicians that work at your practice? I'm the sole provider. I have three staff there that help me obviously run the show and are invaluable, but I'm the sole provider right now. I've been open a couple of years. So now I think I've finally grown my practice to a point where I'm busy and I'm booked However, I'm definitely not ready to hire somebody else. Like, I don't think I have that volume yet. I lost a whole year of marketing, unfortunately, with, the, with COVID. You know, a lot of people say small businesses will bounce back, but you have to ask the question, will we bounce forward? Because we lost a lot of time. I mean, I lost a whole year of marketing that I, I was going to primary care doctors almost every week. I was going to networking events, meeting all the other potential referring doctors, you know, and as soon as the pandemic hit, I haven't done that in, in almost a year now. So well, we can you know, definitely so talk about that. I have a lot of ideas about that. And actually, you know, you could even use it at, almost as an opportunity. I know a lot of people are doing Zoom happy hours and Zoom networking and all of that. And actually, have you been on Clubhouse? That's new. I have been on Clubhouse, yes, but not for networking. I've been on there for, it was actually with other allergists, almost like an educational talk type thing. 
Oh, I would love to be a fly on the wall and join that room. Yeah, you can. It's open to public. I'll send you the link. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm on, I'm on Clubhouse. And I've been looking for the physicians on there just to, because I love to hear them talk, even though if they get real technical, I only understand part of what they're talking about. But I'm very nerdy like that. So yeah. they do it every can, Tuesday night. Oh, okay. Tuesday, what time? It's every other Tuesday. It's at like 5.30 um, or 9.30. So this coming Tuesday, it's at 5.30. Oh, so the, for our listeners... That's good for them too, if they would be interested in also being a fly on the wall. Yeah. (laughs) So is it generally just all of the other physicians do the same practice area and you kind of brainstorm and talk about challenges you have in your practice? Yeah. And and, then we also talk about topics. So like last week we talked about asthma and COVID. And so different, different things every week, this past week I missed. um, So I can't make it to every single one, obviously, just because of my kids, but um, I try to go to some of them. And yeah, they're great so far. So awesome. I'm going to check that out. So you'll see me on there. And then what are some things that you wish that the public knew to just care for themselves better with respect to allergies? So one thing is to that there are treatment options. It's just because all these allergy medications are over the counter doesn't mean that that's it. That's not the end of the road. Okay. There are other medication options. There are other treatment options. So definitely, you know, if you're, you're seeing a primary care doctor and you feel like I need more help, ask to go see a specialist, ask to go see an allergist, because there are definitely a lot of other things that we can discuss. Just like we talked about with penicillin allergy, you might have a penicillin allergy that it's doesn't really exist, or you might think you're allergic to a food, but you're not really allergic to it, you know, or you might be miserable with your seasonal allergies, you might have trouble exercising because of your asthma, there's so many different options out there. So I would say that, you know, take control, (laughs) advocate for yourself and seek out a specialist. That's great advice for any practice area. Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to ask you your opinion about plant based diets because I've been hearing a lot about the health benefits associated with it. And some claims like it'll cure your asthma, it'll cure your, your diabetes, it'll cure a lot of different things. What do you think about that? So I'm a huge proponent of plant based diets in general for your health. So I, the only thing that keeps me from being fully plant based is cheese, I cannot get give up cheese. But otherwise, I'm, I'm definitely I'm vegetarian, and I'm almost fully plant based except for cheese. So I, I really try to practice what I preach as well. Um, it will not cure your asthma, and it will not cure your allergies, it will not boost your immune system, it won't do any of that. However, there have been studies that show, and, and I'm not a cardiologist. So don't, you know, don't quote me on any, don't ask me about any statistics or anything. But I do know that it has been shown to decrease cholesterol and reverse damage. And, and so I know that there are some doctors on, you know, social media cardiologists who will actually talk about how they get their patients to improve their hypertension, whatever cardiac disease they have going on diabetes as well, by just switching to a plant based diet, eating healthier exercising. So I think just in general, eating healthier exercising will optimize your health and will make you feel better. But it will also um, help with, you know, heart disease and hypertension and diabetes and all of that stuff. It'll, it'll help control all of that for sure. Well, I love plants. <laughs> I really do. I love vegetables and fruit, but I really love meat too. <laughs> A lot of people do. My husband's like that too. Cause I'll make him like these plant-based meals at least three or four times a week. And he usually has one. And then he'll be like, I need a quesadilla now. 
He's like, I'm still hungry. <laughs> he loves his meat. <laughs> I hear you on the cheese too. Cheese is yeah. hard to give up because I've been told that I have a gluten sensitivity. Okay. And it was also just suggested to me that I cut out dairy and sort of see what happens. And I haven't found it very difficult to cut out gluten, although yeah. I'll have bread occasionally like pizza or something. Right. So thank God it's not a real allergy. So exactly. I can't eat it. Now you know the difference. <laughs> yeah. So it, I might be uncomfortable, but it's sort of worth it occasionally. But the right. dairy cheese, and I also put cream in my coffee. I cannot do coffee without cream. And that's been really hard. The dairy has been really hard to let go of. Dairy is usually the hardest one for most people to give up. But like, uh, like yourself, a lot of people even have a very hard time giving up meat. So. Yeah. I mean, I can come back on, I don't need to have it every single day, but I definitely know I like a ribeye. (laughs) I want to go and get a ribeye. But Um, you know, things in moderation are okay. They always say that. So, (laughs) okay. So I, I guess I wanted to know, did you feel like it was an all or nothing sort of thing? Like if you're going to cut out meat, you can't ever have it to get the benefits. No, not at all. I think most of these doctors out there who are practicing, you know, the wellness doctors and cardiologists and people who are advocating for this plant-based diet, they'll say, start by just minimizing it and then just try to live overall, live a healthy lifestyle. Overall, try to avoid eating too many snacks and drinking too much caffeine and eating too much sugar and, you know, eating too much meat. But it doesn't mean that you can't sometimes... I hate to use that word, but it doesn't mean that you can't sometimes do that. So you will still get the benefits by overall doing a plant-based eating, eating the rainbow, you know? Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. See, it wasn't all bad news during this conversation. (laughs) I want to hear your opinion about why are there so many people now, it seems like to me that have these either gluten sensitivities or, or celiac. It just seems like it's, more prevalent? Or is it just that we're just more aware of it? I think we're more aware of it. I think you're gonna I think because we're more aware of it, we know how to diagnose it better. So kind of similar to the COVID thing, right? Like, are the cases really that high? Or were we just testing more at the time? So I think like you're testing more and more people for it. And it's on the menus everywhere, gluten free, gluten free. And I think people are self diagnosing themselves with with um, gluten sensitivities, too. So kind of similar to what I said, where the self reported rate of food allergies is much higher than it actually is. I'm sure the self reported rate for gluten and sensitivity is also uh, higher than it actually is. Yeah, I can believe that. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Patel, for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did too. And a lot of great information here for our viewers. And I would like you to have an opportunity to tell everyone how they can reach out to you if they're interested in consulting with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Christina. This was actually really, really fun talking to you. So um, you can find me on Instagram at Shreya Patel MD. That's probably the best way to find me. Excellent. I will put a link in the show notes and hopefully we can, I'll see you on the clubhouse and maybe we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, Christina. Thank you. Thank you for listening to wake up call the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com and be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.